Hey everyone, we wanted to make a quick announcement before the episode. We will be performing a live podcast show on October 29th, 2021 at Center Stage Theater in Naperville. This will be our first live event, so we're super excited to bring the show to a live audience. The event starts at 7 p.m., and your ticket will include the live episode, a showing of Young Frankenstein, live music by Warren Peach, and a 12-ounce can of the beer pick to enjoy along with us. Tickets are $5 and available for purchase on our website at beerandfearcast.com slash events. A big, big shout out to Center Stage Theater for hosting the event and to Metropolitan Brewing out of Chicago for sponsoring the event and providing the beer. You can check them out at centerstage-theater.com and metrobrewing.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all there. The 57th episode of Beer and Fear. My name is Paige. My name is Zach. Hey, Ben. Good. How was your week? It's okay. Anything new? I got a kitten. You want to talk about that? She's great. She's black. What's her name? Her name's Kennedy. Mm. Yeah. How was your week? Yeah. Anything interesting? New? Work. Work's good. Work? Like work. Good. Makes my day suck less. That's good. Happy for you. Yeah. What can you do? Work? Pretty much. That's what you can do. Consistently. Mm-hmm. Until I die. Well, I mean, you'll retire and then you'll die. You have to have money to retire. Yeah, you could die at work. If you wanted to. I don't think I'd want to haunt the place I work. It is conveniently located next to a graveyard, though. And I did talk to my co-teacher, and she did say that people see ghosts. It's probably one of the easiest places to haunt, if you're going to haunt something. They said there's ghosts at the place I work, at the school I work. It's probably because of the graveyard. That's what I'm saying. So you can be buried at that graveyard and haunt that school, if you want. I don't think I'd want to haunt children. Why? It seems like a waste of time. I don't think they'd get scared at the age they're at. Who wouldn't be a waste of time to haunt? Millionaires. Billionaires. Like Elon Musk? Slowly drive them mad. Jeff Bezos? Definitely Jeff Bezos. You think you can haunt him in space? He's not going to stay in space. But can you know, like your ghost spirit make it to space, you think? If I was attached to Jeff Bezos, then I could haunt him anywhere. Hmm. How do you get attached to Jeff Bezos? Unfinished business. <laughs> that is the rules of haunting. <laughs> I didn't know there were rules. There are. Well, I'd like to haunt Jeff Bezos, so if you could give me instructions at some point. I want to slowly drive him mad. Yeah, of course. If anyone deserves it, it's him, you know? Honestly. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk is kind of a dick, so there's that. Yeah, he's a good number two. 
That makes sense. Any politician, really? Yeah. That makes sense, too. Mm, there's options. Nice. You got options when you go. Yep. Haunt whoever you want. Nothing else I can think of as far as my week goes. I live a monotonous, boring life, and I'm going to die sad and alone. No, you're not. No, you don't. Every day is a new day. Mm. What are those called? Platitudes? Yep. Yeah, I learned, I learned that. That's a new word I learned uh, last month. Platitudes. You just got to look on the bright side. Nobody likes platitudes. Yep. Day is only as good as you make it. It's like telling a depressed person to just think on the positive side. Yeah, just think on the bright side of life. <laughs> It'll make everything better. So you have nothing else to add. You just got a kitten, and all you're going to mention is, it's good. Well, I was just responding in the same format you were. I thought this was a thing. Yeah, I got a kitten. I got her from North Aurora and Anderson. Um, she doesn't like Ab- or she doesn't like Casota very much. I've told her Abby 20 times this month. Does she hiss at Casota? Uh, no, Casota hisses at her. Ah. Yeah. So wouldn't it be that Casota doesn't like her? Yeah, but uh, she's also now learned to avoid Casota. Mm. It's like she... She hasn't like... Uh, she's batted at her a couple times, mm. yeah. Yeah, so... Um, but hopefully it gets better. We'll see. We'll mm. see what happens. Who knows? It takes time. Like I told you, my sister's cats took about a week to get used to each other. Yeah, I'm thinking it'll take about that time, too. Um, now they cuddle together. They uh, they did do some nose boops. So they're, they're like getting close to each other and sniffing each other. But as soon as they sniff, Casota uh, hisses. Hmm. But I brought her in for a vet appointment today. I got a free vet appointment that I paid $200 for. Um and she's a-okay. Her health is perfect, so the doctor said. And I'm going to Michigan. Mm, I forgot. Tomorrow. And I come back Monday. And You're then it's my birthday. taking a short vacation? Yep. How long's the vacation? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Oh, okay. To see my mom. It's nice. Yeah. Get some wine and uh, celebrate my birthday up in Michigan. I'll come back Monday. And then <gasps> uh, it'll be Tuesday. And then it'll be Tuesday. Then it'll be Wednesday. And then Thursday. And then our live show. You believe it? Yeah, for the three people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the three people attending. It's going to be a... They're going to get one hell of a show. Let me tell you. Anything else? No. Any other update in life? No. Cool. Yeah. Our topic is, I guess, bombs. You shouldn't guess. You should know it is bombs. Because you picked it. So bombs. Mm-hmm. Our beer comes from Front Street Brewery. Never heard of them. It's called Cherry Bomb Blonde. Okay. I imagine a blonde ale that tastes like cherries. The description from Front Street Brewery is, Having been in continuous operations since 1992, Front Street Brewery is the oldest brew pub and second oldest brewery in the state of Iowa. So this brew is from out of state. It was the 30th craft brewery to be established in the unit. I'm sorry, 300th. I missed a zero. Hmm. 
Uh, to be established in the United States, the brewery's humble beginnings started with a seven-barrel brew house in the basement of the current pub and eatery location, located on River Drive in downtown Davenport. The 100-plus-year-old building is nestled along the banks of the Mississippi River in downtown Davenport, Iowa, in what was known from the late 1800s into the early 1900s as the Bucktown Neighborhood. How did they know it was the 300th in the I nation? Don't, maybe they just sat down... And counted. Ever since the first brew pub, they've been keeping score. That's the way I thought about it. Apparently. It's considered a fruit and field beer. It has scores on Beer Advocate. The description is, we start with an American light beer, lightly hopped, using only the finest hops. Who decides that? Cherry is then added to this beer and aged in our beer cellar, producing a delightful, refreshing taste and aroma. Yeah, finest is subjective. That's what I'm saying. There's finer hops out there, I'm sure. Who picks that? On Beer Advocate, its score is 82, which is good. It is good. It is ranked 612 in Fruit and Field beers and ranked 44,116 overall. It's not too bad. Its average score is 3.51. Its ABV is 5.4%. And like I said, it is from Iowa. Ew. Ew. It sounds like I'm saying something in Japanese. Ew. Ew. It, yeah, it sounds like a pretty uh, easy to swallow cherry beer. You heard me. I did. You heard um, me. What I don't like about their website, and I know I've never complained about this before, but it just rubs me the wrong way, is when you go to beers on their menu, like their drop down menu, it takes you to untapped. Like they don't mm. have a list of their own beers on their website, mm-hmm. but if I'm very odd, mm. I'd like to, you know, read from the the brewery and get like their words, but no, I get untapped words. Like, what is that? My eyes are burning. Hmm. Should uh, carry around some eye drops. I can't do eye drops. Why? I do like the whole like. Yeah. Now you eventually get used to them. Didn't I tell you the story of how I first tried to get contacts? I don't recall. When I was a kid like a teenager i had just moved in with my dad i was like i want to get contacts i don't want to wear glasses anymore new school new page new me Mm -hmm. so i went to the optometrist in like a sears in the mall and they're like okay here's you know the testing or whatever you need to do to get contacts we're gonna sit you down with the lady that teaches you how to put in contacts i kid you not i was with this lady for like an hour just trying to get over the phobia of poking myself in the eye I'm pretty sure she hates me to this day. My yeah, dad she, brings it up to make fun of me. She probably still remembers you. Oh, God. 100%. Yeah. So I will never wear contacts. I don't think I could wear contacts either. If I had, if I had shitty vision, which I don't, I have perfect vision. And um, He says wearing glasses. And I'm better than all y'all. No, well. Um, because I can see. But if I, had I a, can see. if I had a choice, I would pick glasses over contacts, I think. Just because that just seems so inconvenient. You know? Oh, God, kill me. You know? Mm-hmm. That's it about the beer. All right, I'll go get it. We're sharing a can. Yeah, we are sharing a can. This is different. Do you want to just fill up one glass and take a picture? Because I don't think a half full glass would look very good. You know what? You are way smarter than I am. I don't think that's... 
was just an observation. Really. I, w- I wouldn't have uh, remembered to do that. Sorry, I can't stop staring at the lady on this can. <laughs> She's pretty cute. It's your beer. You can open it. That's fine. <laughs> just make it good. Excellent. That was fantastic. Wonderfully done. Mm. Well, that worked out a lot better than I thought. I didn't get to smell it out of the can. Man, this whole one can thing is not working. Mm. It smells good. It smells like very much like cherries. Which is usually something that's like a letdown because whenever you get like a fruit beer, you really never get like the full like smell. Don't they usually smell more like the fruit than they taste like the fruit? Hasn't that been our history with fruit beers? I feel like... Like purple haze. That's true. And I'm well, usually... I just have to hope that it tastes like cherries. I'm usually not a big fan of like artificial cherry. I love the artificial cherry. Like the maraschino cherries I you get on Sundays those. or in love milkshakes. Them. I'm a hoe for those. I can eat them in a cocktail. Just like green olives, but... It smells... Very strongly cherries. Yeah, that's the dominating flavor or dominating scent. Straw colored, light, not super see through. That might just be the condensation on the glass. Yeah, a little bit opaque, but very light colored. Almost looks like a lager. You said this was a a, a flavored fruit field fruit fruit and field beer. Fruit field whatever beer. that means. Talk about a good clink. Tastes like juice. It does. There's really no bite to it whatsoever. Very easy to drink. And very strongly cherry flavored. I'm not saying the entire thing is 100% cherry, but... This reminds me of Food Truck. Oh God, I don't even remember Food Truck. It was a Pilsner, and it was this color. It was a lager. Um, but it was crisp like this, very just neutral mm-hmm. tasting, wheat tasting beer. Uh, it tastes like um, food truck with cherries added to it. Ingredients are water, hops, barley, yeast, and natural cherry flavor. I'm going to be honest, I could ask for more flavor. See, that's what, what, we were just saying that. Every time. Smells like cherries. It doesn't taste quite like enough like cherries. Purple haze tastes it smelled like grapes or whatever the fuck purple haze was. Wasn't that like a raspberry? I can't remember. That was like episode seven. I'm pretty sure it was raspberry. It's tasty. It's good. I'd probably get more than one just because it's just easy to drink. It is very easy to it's drink. It's crisp. But me personally, the cherry flavor, artificial cherries, not a big fan, but if you like cherries, you'll like this beer. It's like Paige. She's done with it. I had half of it. Not even half of it. Most of that was foam. Not for me. <clears throat> it's good, and it's. Uh, I think I like it. It's good. It's good. I think I like it more than a few other beers that we've had these mm-hmm. last few episodes. I'll probably rate it higher, but there's a chance you may score this one higher than me. I was staring at your socks, and I don't know why, but I just had this epiphany about how much I hate having to constantly put these kids' shoes back on when they take them off. Why do they take their shoes off? They just take them the fuck off to take them off. They always need their shoes on? They're in a school building. 
on tile floor. Mm. So, yes. They take their socks off. Sometimes. That's gross. And it drives me fucking crazy. One of them does it and then looks at you with a little fucking smirk and I'm just like, oh. They know what they're doing. Ooh. Yeah, they know. These are uh, my uh, Michigan socks. Those are definitely Michigan-shaped. Yep. Not the socks. Not there's the a, socks. There's yeah, a the the symbol of Michigan. I don't know the symbol. <laughs> yeah, the symbol of Michigan. I don't know how... Forever Mich- in our prayers, the symbol of Michigan. Michigan-shaped socks would work on your feet, but... I have no clue. Where does the Upper Peninsula go? On your big toe. All right. As Paige said, this episode's about bombs. Oh, you printed it out. Here's what I did. Why don't you use your laptop? I went to... Because this was easier for me while I was at work. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually it's like that you have a header and everything. Uh, well, this is this is just uh, the page. Oh, it's just the Wikipedia. Wiki- I did not see that. Just it said the Wikipedia, Wikipedia page. Oh, interesting. Um, and you just highlighted. Not shit. yeah, not hiding anything. Yeah, a little graph. Wikipedia. Right there. There's some graphics here. Yep. What's on the back of that page? Uh, I actually wrote a, a thing from another page. I see that? What's on the back of the first page? More text and pictures. There's more pictures. Yeah. There's a. Uh, early bombs interesting so we've got some graphics to go along with this i usually type out notes and i like yeah sometimes i most of the time copy and paste but um i'll type out my notes but this just i don't know for whatever reason was easier i Um, mean you know this episode just test things out yeah test the water so i'm gonna try and read this a bomb is an explosive weapon that uses the exothermic reaction of an explosive material mm-hmm. to provide an extremely sudden and violent release of energy. Detonations inflict damage principally through ground and atmosphere transmitted mechanical stress, the impact and penetration of pressure driven projectiles, pressure damage, and explosion generated effects. So there's different ways that bombs can inflict damage. A brief history of bombs. Mm. Explosive bombs were used, you heard me, in East Asia in 1221 by a Jurchen Jin army against a Chinese Song city. You know, you know all about those. That's how it goes. Bombs built using bamboo tubes appear in the 11th century. Bombs made of cast iron shells packed with explosive gunpowder date to uh, 13th century China. Mm -hmm. The term was coined for this bomb i.e. thundercrash bomb, oh. during a Jin Dynasty naval battle of 1231 against the Mongols. So they called these particular bombs thundercrash bombs. And that's that's a picture of them. They look like geodes. They like do. Big old rocks. Interesting. Um, Are those the cast iron ones? Yes. I want to see a picture of the bamboo ones. Bombs made of cast iron shells, yes. Hmm. So apparently they started, bombs started in China. I did not think that they started that long ago. Yeah, from 1221 earliest. That's really interesting. Yeah, bamboo tube bombs. Thundercrash bombs uh, consisted of gunpowder put into an iron container. Then Uh when the fuse was lit and the projectile shot off, there was a great explosion. The noise whereof was like thunder, audible for more than 30 miles. And the vegetation was scorched and blasted by the heat over an area more than half a moo. A what? A moo. Okay. It's about one-sixth of an acre. Thank you. It's a Chinese unit of measurement, which I don't think is used anymore, but uh, I had to look it up. It's about one-sixth of an acre. When hit, even iron armor was pierced through this bomb. The Ming Dynasty 
describes the use of use of poisonous gunpowder bombs, including the wind and dust bomb. The Ming Dynasty was like 1368 through 1644 AD. And then this is the wind and dust bomb. Um, it's a pot that contains a tube of gunpowder, and then it was thrown at invaders. It's that little graphic there. Very archaic. You just take a pot, you know, like from Legend of Zelda, the ones that you hit with the sword. Yeah. And uh, a, a tube of gunpowder, and then you just light it and throw it. During the Mongol invasions of Japan, the Mongols used the explosive thunder crash bombs we mentioned before during or um, against the Japanese. So, explosive shock waves can cause situations such as body displacement, people being thrown through the air, dismemberment, and Could you just say people being thrown through the air. <laughs> body displacement. Let's you get, know. We got to get specific here. Oh no, George was bodily displaced. He was displaced. His whole body was displaced. In the War of 1812, he was bodily displaced. Uh, dismemberment, internal bleeding, and ruptured eardrums. Hmm. Shockwaves produced by explosive. But not death. I mean, <laughs> not necessarily. No. You can, your body can be displaced, you can be dismembered, you can bleed internally, and your eardrums can rupture, and you can still live. I'd just say kill me at that point. Yeah. Shockwaves produced by explosive events have two distinct components, the positive and negative wave. The positive wave shoves outward from the point of detonation, followed by the trailing vacuum space sucking back mm -hmm. towards the point of origin as the shock bubble collapses. <sighs> the greatest defense against shock injuries is distance from the source of shock. So try to get far away. Um, and then heat... A thermal wave is created by the sudden release of heat caused by an explosion. So these are, I guess, I'm describing different ways that a bomb can harm you. Mm -hmm. Military bomb tests have documented temperatures of up to 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty hot. While capable of inflicting severe to catastrophic burns and causing secondary fires, thermal wave effects are considered very limited in range compared to shock and fragmentation. This rule has been challenged, however, by military development of thermobaric weapons, which employ a combination of negative shockwave effects and extreme temperature to incinerate objects within the blast radius. Mm. This would be fatal to humans, as bomb tests have proven. Uh, fragmentation is produced by the acceleration of shattered pieces of bomb casing and adjacent physical objects. The use of fragmentation in bombs dates back to the 14th century and appears in some Ming Dynasty texts. The fragmentation bombs were filled with iron pellets, and pieces of broken porcelain. Once the bomb explodes, the resulting fragments are capable of piercing the skin and blinding enemy soldiers. While conventionally viewed as small metal shards moving at supersonic and hypersonic speeds, fragmentation can occur in epic proportions and travel for extensive distances. When the SS Grand Camp exploded in the Texas City disaster in 1947, one fragment of that blast was a two-ton anchor, which was hurled nearly two miles inland to embed itself in the parking lot of the Pan American refinery. Jesus. Effects on living things. To people who are close to a blast incident, um, there are four types of blast effects that can uh, take place in the human body. Overpressure, which is shock, fragmentation, impact, and heat. We've touched on a few of these already. Overpressure refers to the sudden and drastic rise in ambient pressure that can damage the internal organs, possibly leading to permanent damage or death. Fragmentation can also include sand, debris, and vegetation from the area surrounding the blast source. 
The projection of materials poses a potentially lethal threat caused by cuts in soft tissues as well as infections and injuries to the internal organs. When the overpressure wave impacts the body, it can induce violent levels of blast-induced acceleration. Resulting injuries may range from minor to unsurvivable. Immediately following this initial acceleration, deacceleration injuries can occur when a person impacts directly against a rigid surface or obstacle after being set in motion by the force of the blast. So your your body is displaced mm-hmm. against a building, like a wall, and that is your deacceleration. That's the deacceleration it talks about. Instant deacceleration. Finally, injury and fatality can result from the explosive fireball as well as incendiary agents projected onto the body. Personal protective equipment, such as a bomb suit or demining ensemble, as well as helmets, visors, and foot protection can dramatically reduce the four effects depending on the charge, proximity, and other variables. Interesting. I want to talk about a few types of bombs. Looks like I have way more notes than I actually need to read, so I'm not going to get through all this, but... Uh, Improvised explosive materials are typically unstable and subject to spontaneous unintentional detonation triggered by a wide range of environmental effects ranging from impact and friction to electrostatic shock. A little meow? Yes, little meows. Even subtle motion, change in temperature, or the nearby use of cell phones or radios can trigger an unstable or remote control device. So when there's a bomb somewhere, uh, you're supposed to leave, obviously, but... Did I, I told you about that time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was uh, one of my favorite intros to one of our episodes. Ridiculous. But you're not supposed to use your phone or remote control devices or anything that can transmit a radio signal around uh, bombs because gotcha. they could detonate them. It's like not using your phone on an airplane. Exactly. I don't want to say a sentence with the word airplane and the B word in it, so I'm just not going to. Yeah, don't. That's a good idea. Not in America. The FBI is listening. Any interaction with explosive materials or devices by unqualified personnel should be considered a grave and immediate risk of death or dire injury. The safest response to finding an object believed to be an explosive device is to get as far away from it as possible. Or just pretend like everything's normal and continue selling people Legos. (laughs) Atomic bombs are based on the theory of nuclear fission. That when a large atom splits, it releases a massive amount of energy. Thermonuclear weapons, uh, known as hydrogen bombs, use the energy from an initial fission explosion to create an even more powerful fusion explosion. I'm not even going to pretend like I know what any of this means. I've been reading a lot of news articles and watching a lot of videos about how we're literally just molecules (laughs) and atoms in the universe and everything's made up of those. So nothing really matters. And yeah, that just speaks to me. Like, that's some, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson shit. <laughs> you ever see the Key and Peele skit with Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yes. It's fucking hilarious. I've never it's seen it before. Funny. <laughs> Just the slow, the slow turn to the camera. Every time. <laughs> the term... Uh. The term dirty bomb refers to a specialized device that relies on a comparatively low explosive yield to scatter harmful material over a wide area. Most commonly associated with radiological or chemical materials, dirty bombs seek to kill or injure and then to deny access to a contaminated area until a thorough cleanup can be accomplished. In the case of urban settings, this cleanup may take extensive time, rendering the contaminated zone virtually uninhabitable in the interim. Below is a list of five different types of bombs based on the fundamental explosive mechanism they employ. 
Compressed gas. This goes from, like, most elementary to most high-tech. Okay. Relatively small explosions can be produced by pressurizing a container until a catastrophic failure, such as uh, with a dry ice bomb. Technically, these aren't classified as bombs by the definition presented at the top of the article. However, the explosions created by these devices can cause property damage, injury, or death. So I remember when I was a kid, I used to make, um, we called them bombs. And you take, you can't do this anymore because they've since changed the um, the formula of this. But you take, it's the brand is called Cleaner. You buy Cleaner, it's called And then you buy a two liter soda. You dump all the soda out or drink it if you really like soda. And then you buy a sheet of you take the you um, bundle it up into really tiny balls and then put the balls in the two liter. You have a, a good amount of them in there. And then you on top of balls in the bottle, cap it, shake it, and throw it. And for whatever reason, the, uh, the interaction between the and the causes, creates gases and pressure, and it causes the two liter to explode. I made one of those as a kid. I made several as a kid, actually. I just played with fire. I played with fire too, but we also made we also made compressed gas. I don't think I ever made a bomb. You can't do that anymore. Um, I told you I almost set my little sister on fire because we were playing with hairspray and matches. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. On dangerous. top of an electrical unit. <laughs> so I'm like, that's a great place for that. What a better spot. Uh, yeah, you can't do this anymore. I f- I feel like I'm still gonna censor some of that. Because I don't want to be liable for people. Yeah, you're literally giving instructions on how, on how to make, make an explosive. Yep. So I'd probably bleep a lot. I'm going to bleep a lot of that out. There's low explosive. The simplest and oldest bombs store energy in the form of a low explosive. You light. Uh, I mean, you even gave the specific. You can't. You can't use that anymore. So I tried. I tried to do it again, and it oh, did you? Oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Black powder is an example of a low explosive. They usually consist of um, a mixture of an oxidizing salt, such as saltpeter. Salt, saltpeter? It's it's spelled salt and then the name Peter. Like, But I think it's saltpeter. You don't say the T in salt. With solid fuel, such as charcoal or aluminum powder. So it's a mixture of those. Um, they deflagrate upon ignition, producing hot gas. Generally, these uh, must be used in large quantities or confined in a container with high burst pressure to be useful as a bomb. Mm -hmm. There's high explosive. High explosive bomb is one that employs a process called detonation to rapidly go from an initially high energy molecule to a very low energy molecule. Detonation is distinct from deflagration in that the chemical reaction propagates faster than the speed of sound in an intense shockwave. Therefore, the pressure wave produced by a high explosive is not significantly increased by confinement as detonation occurs so quickly that the resulting plasma does not expand much before all the explosive material has reacted. This has led to the development of plastic explosive, like C4. There's thermobaric. It's a type of explosive that utilizes oxygen from the surrounding air to generate an intense high-temperature explosion. And in practice, the blast wave typically produced by such a weapon is of a significantly longer duration than that produced by a conventional condensed explosive. There's nuclear fission. These bombs utilize the energy presents in very heavy atomic nuclei. In order to re- release this energy rapidly, a certain amount of the fissile material, fissile material must be very rapidly consolidated while being exposed to a neutron source, obviously. 
If consolidation occurs slowly, repulsive forces drive the material apart before a significant explosion can occur. Common mistake. Uh, the energy released by a nuclear fission bomb may be tens of thousands of times greater than a chemical bomb of the same mass. Then there's nuclear fusion, different from nuclear fission. The uh, A thermonuclear weapon is a type of nuclear bomb that releases energy through the combination of a fission and fusion of the light atomic nuclei of deuterium and tritium. Hmm. If you didn't know that. It's caused by the detonation of a fission-type nuclear bomb contained within a material containing high concentrations of those two uh, elements, the two nuclei. Nuclear fusion bombs can have arbitrarily high yields, making them hundreds or thousands of times more powerful than nuclear fission. There's also antimatter bombs, uh, which can theoretically be constructed, but antimatter is very costly to produce, obviously, and it's hard to store safely. I've tried before. And uh, I could not contain all of my antimatter. It mm. just got all over the place. It was messy. I just was like, well, I can't do this anymore. You know, you know how it is. And then uh, I had a uh, supplemental thing. Just a, a quick little fact about Molotov cocktails. This is actually a, a printout of most of the popular different kinds of bombs. So there's C4 on here. There's a car bomb. There's smoke bombs, stink bombs, napalm bombs, cobalt bombs, hydrogen bombs, etc. And it actually shows when they were created and who created them. Like, for example, the nail bomb Mm -hmm. was created in 1970 in America. But the Molotov cocktail, just a fun fact, it's an improvised incendiary grenade often made in a beer bottle. This one doesn't have a date created or where it was created, but I have a fun fact. The name's origin, Molotov cocktail, came from the propaganda um, Vyacheslav Molotov. It's a dude. Mm -hmm. Vyacheslav Molotov produced during the Winter War. Mainly his declaration on Soviet state radio that bombing missions over Finland were actually airborne humanitarian food deliveries for their starving neighbors. Uh-huh. So he was trying to be funny and say that this these bombing missions against Finland was food deliveries. As a result, the Finns sarcastically dubbed the Soviet cluster bombs Molotov bread baskets in reference to Molotov's propaganda broadcasts. So they named them after, after Molotov, and they were his bread baskets because he said they were food. So when the handheld bottle uh, firebomb was developed to attack Soviet tanks, the Finns called it the Molotov cocktail as, quote, a drink to go with his food parcels. Ah, that's funny. That's how the Molotov cocktail got its name. And that's my section. Yeah. So I'm going to go into a few things, as one would do on a podcast. It makes sense. Yes. I'm listening. Exactly. But first, we're going to go into the most, I'm sorry, yes, the most powerful nuclear bombs. I don't know why I stopped myself. Mm. I knew what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Just say it. You know? Don't doubt yourself, never. The MK-14 nuclear bomb is 6.9 megatons. The Mark-14 nuclear bomb, also dubbed the MK-14 or TX-14, was an American thermonuclear weapon designed in the 1950s and was the first solid fuel staged hydrogen bomb in the world 
As an experimental weapon, the United States only produced five of these bombs by 1954, testing the device in April of that year during the Castle Union nuclear experiment using a non-radioactive isotope of lithium. The nearly 18-foot-long bomb was designed to be delivered by either B-36 or B-47 bombers due to its substantial weight of 31,000 pounds. Jeez a very big bomb, and employed a parachute drop method to decelerate its fall to the earth. During the Castle Union nuclear test, the MK-14 was successfully detonated with a yield of 6.9 megatons. In terms of size, the MK-14 was approximately 328 times more powerful than the atomic bomb Fat Man dropped Mm -hmm. over Nagasaki in 1945. Mm -hmm. Despite successful tests, the MK-14s were retired later in the year due to the fact that 5 megatons of its total power derived from fission reactions or fission fission or fission fission yeah Yeah. that's that's far too many tons though as a result the weapon was considered very dirty referring to the tremendous amount of radiation dispersed from the device after detonation dirty dirty bomb dirty bomb in response all five of the mk-14s were recycled and used to construct the larger more effective mk-17 variants by 1956 you're just making me think of fallout because you said Megaton, and then you said Fat Man. Uh, so I, all I can think of is Fallout. The MK-16 nuclear bomb, or it's seven megatons. The Mark 16 nuclear bomb, also referred to as the MK-16, TX-16, or EC-16, was a large thermonuclear nuclear weapon based on the Ivy Mike hydrogen bomb. The weapon was the only nu- thermonuclear bomb ever developed to use cryogenic deuterium fusion fuel. Due to the number of vacuum flasks required for this type of fuel, the bomb was extraordinarily large, weighing 42,000 pounds, with a length of nearly 25 feet. Okay. As a result, a specifically modified B-36 was the only American aircraft capable of deploying the weapon. Hmm. Despite being manufactured in January 1954, the bombs were retired by April of that year due to successful tests of solid-fueled nuclear weapons. Notably, the MK-14s. Although tests of the MK-16 were planned to take place during Operation Castle, the success of Castle Bravo's shrimp device made the MK-16 relatively obsolete in the eyes of the American military. Nevertheless, current estimates place the MK-16 series of bombs in the top 10 most powerful nuclear weapons ever developed due to their expected yield of 7 to 8 megatons approximately 333 times more powerful than Fat Man. I want to know more about these shrimp devices. I'm very interested. That sounds delicious. I love shrimp cocktails. B-53 or MK-53 nuclear bomb with nine megatons. The uh, B-53 was a -a bunker buster. Yeah, it was. Thermonuclear weapon developed by the United States military during the 1960s. The bomb was first designed in response to the deep underground bunkers constructed for Soviet leaders during the Cold War. Using a surface blast to collapse the surrounding Earth onto its target, the bomb was designed to inflict massive damage on underground centers, giving the United States a decisive edge in the event of nuclear war. 
Although much smaller than nuclear bombs from the 1950s, weighing 8,850 pounds and measuring just over 12 feet in length, the bomb had far greater yield of 9 megatons. At this field, a B-53 detonation was capable of destroying all structures within a 9-mile radius, with severe burns possible as far as 20 miles. 9 miles? That's nothing. Depending on terrain, researchers believe that casualty rates within 2.25 miles of the blast would be in the vicinity of 90%. Over 340 B-53s were developed during the 1960s, with 50 of these bombs being transferred to the Titan projects that incorporated the W-53 nuclear warhead. The final B-53s were dismantled during 2011 after numerous safety concerns were raised concerning their security and containment. The MK-36 nuclear bomb, which yielded 10 megatons, uh, was a high-yield thermonuclear weapon first developed in the 50s using a multi-stage fusion system comparable to the Mark 21. The MK-36 was considered the first dry nuclear weapon ever tested by the United States government. In total, the massive MK-36, which measured over 150 inches long and weighed nearly 17,700 pounds, was capable of delivering a total yield of 10 megatons upon detonation. Using two separate parachutes, the bomb was designed to be airdropped slowly over its target to give bomber crews enough time to escape potential harm. Mm. In total, the United States military developed over 940 MK-36 bombs between 1956 and 58 with two separate versions being developed, including the Y-1 and Y-2. As with most of the United States, every early nuclear weapons, however, uh, the MK-36 was quickly retired by 62. It's like, they really think they're going to drop all... They made 900 of them? They really think they're going to drop all those? Welcome to America. And then by the time they're done making them all, it's like something new has come up. And they get retired. IV Mike H-bomb. 10.4 10.4 megatons. The Ivy Mike H-bomb, a hydrogen bomb, was a thermonuclear weapon first detonated on the 1st of November 1952 by the United States on Enowatak Atoll, designed by Richard Garwin. The bomb was incredibly massive with a total length of 244 inches hmm. and a total weight of 82 tons. Following detonation, Ivy Mike produced a total yield of 10.4 megatons, creating a fireball with a 2.1-mile radius. The explosion was so powerful and violent that the bomb's mushroom cloud rose to an altitude of 56,000 feet in less than 90 seconds, reaching a maximum height of 135,000 feet. Radioactive debris was reported falling nearly 35 miles away from the blast site, while radioactive fallout remained for several months. The explosion also resulted in the creation of two new elements known as Einsteinium and Fermium, which were produced around the detonation site due to the bomb's highly concentrated neutron flux. In terms of destructive power, the Ivy Mike was approximately 472 times more powerful than Fat Man. Create a bomb so good it creates some elements. I'm looking at pictures of these. It's ridiculous. The MK-24 or B-24 nuclear bomb, which yielded 10 to 15 megatons. It, um, they were, well, it was a massive thermonuclear weapon developed by the United States between 1954 and 1955. Approximately 105 of the de- uh, these devices were constructed in less than a year and were based on the Castle Yankee series of bomb tests. 
as the third largest nuclear bomb in size ever constructed by the Americans. The bomb itself was massive, measuring over 296 inches long and weighing over 42,000 pounds. Although never officially tested by the government, except for a prototype device in 54, researchers believe that the bomb possessed an overall yield of 10 to 15 megatons. Due to its destructive capability, a 64-foot parachute was specifically designed for the Mark 20 floor. Mm. 24. What did I say? 20 floors. Yeah, sure. To slow its descent and allow bomber crews ample time to escape its blast radius. Although decommissioned soon after its development, a surviving Mark 24 uh, casing remains on display at the Castle Air Museum in Atwater, California to this day. Mm. MK-17, 10 to 15 megatons. The MK-17, or Mark-17, was the first mass-produced series of hydrogen bombs developed by the United States military in 54, although they were phased out in 57 uh, due to more efficient prototypes that were in development. The MK-17 was an extremely powerful weapon with a, yielding approaching, with a yield approaching 15 megatons. The MK-17 was well-known for its weight and size, measuring over 41,500 pounds with a length of 24 feet 8 inches. Approximately 200 of the MK-17s were developed between 54 and 55, along with several modified B-36 bombers designed specifically for the bomb's particularities. Like many of the bombs on this list, a 64-foot parachute was also specifically designed to delay the bomb's descent to Earth, giving bomber crews time to escape the blast radius and initial shockwave upon detonation. With the creation of a smaller, uh, easily transportable bomb, in the late 50s, the MK-17 was later phased out in 57. TX-21 Shrimp, 14.8 megatons. Talk about shrimp again. The TX-21 nuclear bomb, also known as the Shrimp Thermonuclear Bomb, or Castle Bravo, was a weapon first tested on the 1st of March 1954 at Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. Housed in a cylinder weighing, weighing nearly 23,500 pounds and measuring over 179.5 inches in length, the massive bomb was originally designed as a 6-megaton weapon that used lithium deuteride to power its fission reaction. However, due to errors encountered during its design, the explosion at Bikini Atoll was nearly three times the predicted yield, generating nearly 15 megatons of destructive force approximately a thousand times more powerful than the atomic bombs used on Japan during the Second World War. Within one second after its detonation, the nuclear weapon formed a 4.5-mile-wide fireball that was visible over 250 miles away. <laughs> the characteristic mushroom cloud reached heights of 47,000 feet in less than a minute with an overall width of 7 miles. Nearly 7,000 square miles of the surrounding Pacific Ocean were contaminated with radioactive debris, with areas such as Rongerik, Uterik, and Rongelap being among the areas most affected by the falling matter. Due to high winds during the test, radioactive substances were also found as far away as Southeast Asia, Australia, Europe, and the southwestern United States for several weeks following the blast. Unanticipated. Uh, Am I okay? Mm-hmm. Follow-up and radiation created an international incident in the weeks that followed, as thousands of individuals were affected by various levels of radiation sickness, which included nausea, diarrhea, hair loss, skin lesions, and vomiting. Although TX-21 was not the largest nuclear bomb designed by the American military, it remains the largest nuclear test ever carried out by the United States. B-41, 25 megatons. 
The B-41 nuclear bomb, also known as the MK-41, was a three-stage nuclear thermonuclear weapon designed by the United States during the early 1960s. As the most powerful bomb ever constructed by the Americans, the maximum yield of the device was estimated to generate nearly 25 megatons of destructive force upon detonation. Employing uh, deuterium, deuterium, tritium, deuterium, tritium, as its primary, along with lithium, six enriched deuteride for its fuel source, uh, whatever these mean, the B-41 utilized nuclear fusion to create its massive yield. The B-41 measured over 12 feet long and weighed over 10,670 pounds and was designed to be carried by the massive B-52 Stratofortress and B-47 Stratajet. Nearly 500 of these bombs uh, were developed between 60 and 62, before finally being retired in 76. Despite being smaller than the most powerful bomb on our um, on the list so mm-hmm. far, researchers argue that the B-41 was the most efficient thermonuclear weapon ever designed in history, maintaining that the highest yield-to-weight ratio of any weapon created. In terms of power and destructive capabilities, the B-41's yield was approximately 1,136 times more powerful than the atomic bombs detonated in Japan. Number one, Sar Bomba, 50 megatons. Now we're talking. The RDS-220 hydrogen bomb, which was affectionately dubbed the Sar Bomba, was the most powerful nuclear bomb ever built and was detonated by the Soviet Union on the 30th of October, 1961. Delivered by a modified Tu-95V Soviet bomber, the bomb weighed approximately 27 metric tons, or 59,520 pounds and was 26 feet long by 7 feet wide. Due to its tremendous size and destructive power, a special parachute was constructed to slow the descent of the bomb to Earth, giving the bomber crew time to fly away, approximately 28 miles away, before it detonated. Unbeknownst to the crew, however, Soviet scientists gave the pilots only a 50% chance of actually surviving the blast. Joy. At 11.32 p.m., the bomb was dropped from an altitude of 34,500 feet and detonated approximately 4,000 meters above ground. The nuclear blast, possibly reaching a yield of 58.6 megatons, was so powerful that shockwaves were felt over 127 miles away by an observation aircraft. Although the Tu-95V bomber crew survived the blast, their aircraft was caught by the shockwave 71 miles away, nearly downing the plane. An experimental American aircraft known as the KC-135R was also in the area during the test and was scorched by the blast, nearly killing the pilot on board. Following its detonation, the Sarbamba could be seen over 620 miles away and created a five-mile-wide fireball, along with a 42-mile-high mushroom cloud, seven times the height of Mount Everest. Yep. That reached Earth's mesophile. I give up. Researchers discovered, to their amazement, that the bomb's shockwaves reached distances of 560 miles, shadowing windows as far away as Norway and Finland. Heat from the explosion was also capable of causing third-degree burns as far as 62 miles away. Despite the bomb's tremendous power, Soviet scientists has actually diminished the star bomba's yield significantly by removing its uranium-238 tamper before delivery. 
Original yields for the SAR bomba were calculated to be 100 megatons. Due to the threat of extreme nuclear fallout, however, and the near certainty that the bomb's delivery crew would be killed following detonation, steps were taken to diminish the bomb. Nevertheless, the SAR bomba remains the single most deadly and powerful nuclear device ever detonated on Earth. Isn't that crazy? It was supposed to be like twice as deadly as it was. And yeah. I look at it, the the picture for it. I was like, you could that's something you could see from space. For oh sure. yeah. That's insane. It's crazy. Five times the height as Mount Everest. That's just scary to look at. You know, it's a uh, it's impressive how we're all still alive today. I know. All these bombs people have detonated across the earth, and and then all the bombs that other countries have too. The United States has, and then North Korea, China, Russia. It's like everyone's got bombs, and they're all ready to go whenever. I just want to also mention um, there were some consequences for the test of the SAR bomba. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Uh, the creation and testing of a super, uh, super bomb were of great political importance for the Soviet Union. They demonstrated its potential in creating a nuclear arsenal of great power. At time, at the time, the most powerful thermonuclear charge ever tested by the United States was 15 megatons. Hmm. After the test of the SAR bomba, the United States did not increase the power of its own thermonuclear tests, and in 63 in Moscow, the treaty banning nuclear weapons tests in the atmosphere, outer space, and underwater was signed. Get a whole treaty signed just because you tested a bomb. Yeah, that's probably smart. So crazy. What else did I want to go? Oh, I wanted to go into, yeah. Yeah. So these are instances of bombings. It's just kind of like location, and then it's not like a lot of details on like the bomb itself. Uh, so the Spanish Civil War, which was from July 18th, 1936 to April 1st, 1939, the first modern bombing in history was in Madrid, Spain, on the 28th of August, 1936. Uh, the estimated death toll was 1,490 people. Mm. And then I'm just going to do like a couple. Mm-hmm. The next is Barcelona, Spain, the 16th to the 19th of March, 1938. 1,000 to 1,300 people were mm. killed. Hiroshima, 6th of August, 1945. The first of the only two nuclear weapons used against non-combatants, uranium-based nuclear weapon codenamed Little Boy, killed 70,000 to 126,000. Including 20,000 Korean slave laborers. Some 70,000 others suffered burns or died by the end of 1945 and in the years afterwards. Nagasaki, 9th of August, 1945, 39,000 to 80,000. The second of the only two nuclear weapons used against non-combatants, plutonium-based nuclear weapon code named Fat Man. Between 34,850 and 39,850 were killed, including 23,200 to 28,200 Japanese industrial workers and 2,000 Korean slave laborers. Some 50,000 others suffered burns or died by the end of 1945. Yeah, and those two I've heard of. Yeah, I just wanted to go into the Those details. are the ones they tell about you in school. I think those are the most, like, dramatic ones. Uh, if you look on, there's actually a list on Wikipedia of, like, wars and then bombings per each bombing that they have records of. Hmm. 
And I think those are the most dramatic and most intense. Mm-hmm. Um, Tokyo, um, the 9th to the 10th of March, 1945, 200,000 to 200,000. A firestorm bomb was dropped. Hamburg, Germany, 24th to the 30th of July, 1943, 42,600. From the Royal Air Force bomber, another firestorm bomb. Mm-hmm. I guess that's, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. That's my section. Yeah, I've only heard of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I've heard of Fat Man before. It's going to fall out. But there are a lot more. I didn't know, like, they made hundreds and hundreds of these either. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, you're just like, oh, they tell you the type of bomb, the name of the bomb. They don't tell you how much they make of the bomb. I figure that's like one, maybe two. Yeah. The mentality is like, oh, they tested it. They made a couple. Yeah. And then the fact, you know, how many tests they've done with these, too. It's like, yeah, I got them surprised we're still standing. But the, um, <laughs> I was looking at pictures of the ones you were talking about while you were mm-hmm. talking about them. And what if you just like went up to one and just like struck it with a little hammer? Give it a little smack. Dink. I made, I looked at them and I thought they looked like suppositories. <laughs> a little bit. But like, I feel like I would be scared shitless making, if I were well, making those bombs. Did you see that news article recently about the honeymooners? Mm-mm. So a honeymoon party, bride and groom, and then I think some friends or family of theirs were in, I want to say the woods or, you know, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Rural area Uh in, um, God, what country was it? Germany, maybe? I can't remember now. Um, They had a bonfire going. Mm -hmm. The groom walked away to go get his camera from his car. And a bomb from World War II went off. <laughs> Jesus. Killed people. Holy shit. Yeah. I have to look up the article now. I'll look it up. Oh, my God. World War One bomb. Sorry. Wow. Bride injured and two were killed. She had shrapnel go through her eye. Jeez. The bomb, thought to have been planted during the Brusilov Offensive in 1916, tore through the party of 12 in Ukraine's Carpathian Mountains. How unlucky. Her brother died. And then I don't remember who the other person was, but the bride's brother died. Wow. No, I didn't hear about that. I only heard of uh, North Korea doing more missile tests. Yeah. Saw that. Exciting news. Lovely. Anything else you wanted to add? I feel like you were going to say something else. I don't know why. Hmm. Appropriate topic for the beer. I feel like it fit. It did. Didn't taste like a bomb going off my mouth, though. Tasted like... Maybe some Pop Rocks. What'd you think of the beer? Uh, artificial cherry's not my thing, mm-hmm. but the beer was crisp and... Uh, it said natural cherry flavor. Oh, yeah. It just tastes like artificial cherry. Anytime I try cherry, it's just... I think I've just been... 
artificial cherry and artificial grape. I've been scarred as a child because I used to take liquid cough medicine when I was sick. And I can't, like those flavors, I cannot do. Um, but it was tasty. It was a crisp beer. It was clean tasting. Tasted like a Pilsner, like a wheat ale. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, it is a wheat ale. Um, and it reminded me of uh, Food Truck. Food Truck's Pilsner, but with a little bit of cherry. I'm scarred for life. I can't drink grape juice ever again. I love grapes. Can't drink grape juice ever again. I don't like grape juice. It grows. I threw it up when I was yeah. a kid. Or white grape juice I can do. Or mm-hmm. sparkling grape juice is good. But just regular grape juice? No. Nope. No. Um, I thought that it was easy to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I have. I would have no problem drinking like a pack of them. Right. It's not like a taste bad or anything. It's just not like, woo. This is impressive. It's good. It's all right. I like it. Yeah. Per, you know, this is our first Iowa beer. Front Street. Tasty. Mm-hmm. Cherry's not my thing, though. Yeah. Well, oh, only in cocktails. Only if I'm drinking a a Manhattan. I do like those fancy cherries that you have. Yes. Those are good. Delicious. Oh. <sighs> Our website is beerandfearcast.com. I need a nap. You can listen to our episodes on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, and TikTok at Beer and Fear Cast. I really got to put some effort into that TikTok. Beer and Fear Cast is our handle. Beerandfearcast at gmail.com is our email. If you want to ask me out on a date. Yes. Or ask for my secret family potato salad recipe. She won't give it to you, I but won't. you can ask. I will not. You can ask. But you I won't, won't give it to you. Or um, or on our website, you can send us a message. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time you're listening to this, on the day it comes out, we have a live show in two days. It's in Naperville. Check out our website. Click on the events button at the top if you want to learn more about that. Come to the damn live show. Or just look on our uh, on our Facebook and our, our Twitter. Just scroll down a little bit. And we've got a page for it. We've got links to it. Tickets five dollars, and um, maybe we shouldn't have charged for the tickets. Maybe we should have just made it free. Uh, I mean, five bucks is. Five. We're like Icarus. We're flying too close to the sun. What's, what's five dollars anyway? You'd find five dollars on the street. Yeah, but sometimes people are like, "Oh, free! I should just go because it's free." You know, caution to the wind. It's free. Do you want to change it? Well, we got the posters already. Yeah, we'll discuss it. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It is on the poster, after all. Five bucks. Hey, five bucks is five bucks. If you want... Uh, also, how does it look to just be like, just kidding, we're going to wave that? Hello, uh, JK. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you get the live podcast, you get a beer with it, and then you w- get to watch a movie, and then you got uh, Warren Peach playing live music. It's going to be amazing. I'll give you a crisp high five. It's going to be incredible. See, you give us a crisp five, and we give you a crisp high five. How about that five deal? Home. It's a nice trade-off. One of these. October 29th, 7 p.m. in Naperville. Check it out. Come to the show. It'll be fun. Show starts at 7.30, though, right? Yeah, doors at 7. Yeah. Well, you want to get there to see see yeah. the music. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Take your seats. Get some food. Listen to Born Peach. It'll be fun. I hope. I hope it'll be fun. Oh, God, I'm scared. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Have a good day.